0: You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I well, invite like you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I appreciate Mark singing that song. That song is based on a part of our text today from Romans chapter 1, verse 7. Just saying, uh, turn to Romans is a little bit Breathtaking uh, for me. Romans has been called the Mount Everest of Paul's letters. And uh, when you stand back before it and look at uh, all that is there, uh, it's both awesome and intimidating. And I'm excited and then a little bit nervous at the same time. Sinclair Ferguson wrote this This is a book, perhaps more than any other letter that has ever been written in history, that has shaped and molded the Christian church. I think that's true. I think about my own uh, heart and life of the impact that Romans has had on me. I was saved by the gospel that is taught here uh, in Romans. Um, I was uh, memorized. I memorized the Romans' road to salvation. Many of you perhaps have done that as well uh, in, in your upbringing. I preached my first sermon that I ever preached uh, my text was Romans chapter twelve that was 30 years ago this year and I uh, uh, memorizing uh, the first part of Romans six I was reflecting on was also a great encouragement in my life and so so many ways uh, this is an amazing book of of the Bible if we were to use it kind of a contemporary metaphor we might say that Romans is the Olympics of biblical exposition or at least maybe the capstone event the marathon Uh, and uh, for for example it took Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones he was a preacher in London in the last century it took him uh, 16 years to preach through the book and and in truth he only made it to 15 years and he or chapter 15 and he retired uh, before he finished So I want to relieve you this morning. I'm not planning on taking 16 years to preach through uh, the book if you're concerned about that, but it will take us a bit, maybe a couple of years, and then we'll take some breaks. The way I want to handle this is is to kind of break up Romans in some sections, and uh, you see a volume one there. Uh, that we'll go through chapters one through four and we'll maybe take a break and study some other things Um, but here's what I know about this if we if we pace ourselves and and persevere through this it's almost guaranteed to us in God's word that our lives and our church will be changed by God through the study of this book and I hope that that is something that gets you uh, excited and encouraged this morning when I say that this is the Mount Everest of Paul's letters, I think the New Testament agrees because it, Romans is placed first among Paul's letters, among the letters in the New Testament. You have the four Gospels and then Acts and then Romans. And it's first, I think, not because it was the first one written uh, historically, that's uh, probably uh, Galatians or 1 Thessalonians, uh, but. Uh, I think it's first here in the New Testament because the early Christians understood this to be of first importance to us, of having uh, enormous doctrinal and theological and practical uh, significance. And uh, so it's exciting to begin this journey. We get a sense of of that, the weight of that, even in the opening verses. And so I just want to read a couple of verses today, verse 1 and verse 7. And I know you're thinking at that pace, Pastor, it's going to take us 20 years. Um, But I think it's good for us to have some introductory kind of, of things. And so Romans 1 verse 1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then look at verse 7, here's who the letter is addressed, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, and here's just taken from, our our song was taken from this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, please help us now as, uh, as we open your word. and and seek to understand it better Lord we acknowledge again that these things are uh, your Holy Spirit is necessary to help us to understand and apply these things into our hearts and lives and we pray for that we pray that you would transform us uh, by your word the spirit Uh, in our lives, and I pray that you would use me as your servant today. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth, and I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I want us to begin our series uh, by asking and answering the question, why Romans, or why preach Romans? Because there are lots of other books of the Bible out there that we could have Picked up today and started preaching, or there's lots of other topics we could have taken up to to uh, spend our time thinking about. So why why Romans? Or or maybe in a different way, why what, what do we hope to achieve by preaching Romans? What do we hope that would that would come out of this? The answer to that is directly is tied directly to another question, uh, which is even more fundamental: is why did Paul write Romans? Why did he write Romans? This is a very important uh, principle uh, in Bible study. When we sit down and read the Bible, whether we're at home uh, in our quiet times or whether we're in a Sunday school class or or here, uh, it's important that we focus on this. We, We need to know not only what does the Bible say, but why was it written? What was intended? Paul did not... I don't think so anyway. I don't think Paul sat down on one Sunday afternoon and he said, you know, I don't have much to do today. I think I'm going to jot down a few things for the Romans. You know, maybe a little bit here and there and, and then I'll send this to them and I hope that they're interested in knowing what to say. I don't think Paul approached this at all in that way. Paul had an intended purpose for writing this letter. And that that is always... What we are after when we sit down to read and study the Bible. We don't begin Bible study, a private Bible study, or, or in a corporate kind of a setting. We do not begin with, what does the Bible mean to me? That's a bad place to start. We, we have to begin with, what did Paul intend for this to mean? What did he mean it to mean? Uh, to what purpose did he write? And here's why this is so critical for us. The Bible does not mean something now that is different than what it meant then. Uh, Its meaning does not change. The Bible's meaning has not changed from the time that that it was uh, penned by Paul and other writers to this day. The meaning has not changed. So we have to find out what it meant then in order to Understand better what it means now. And that principle should always guide your Bible study. When you open the Bible, what did it mean then? What did the author mean for this, uh, intend for this to mean? So, why does Paul write Romans? What was his purpose? What were his reasons? Those are the very same reasons why we would ever pick up the book to study it today and preach on it today. Uh, The only way to find those reasons is from the, the text. Paul is not here. We can't ask him, why did you write Romans? Maybe in heaven we'll get to ask him that. Uh, but he's not here today, so all we can do is look at what he's written and study it and begin to see what themes emerge, what, what, uh, what points did he give emphasis to, what, what things did he share in the book that would, that would say, this is what, why I intended to write this and what I intend for you to receive from it. I want to draw your attention to at least four of those today that I hope will kind of frame in our study, begin our, our study of, of Romans. First of all, Paul's reason for writing Romans was to establish us in the gospel, to establish us in the gospel. We are introduced to the gospel in the very first verse, aren't we? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Notice, first and foremost, right from the beginning, this is not Paul's gospel, this is not any man's gospel, in fact, this is God's gospel. It is the good news of God about his son, Jesus Christ. It comes from God, it belongs to God, and Paul is merely a servant. Of this gospel. In the first 17 verses here in Romans chapter 1, it's, it's kind of known as an introduction or a prologue, but we see the word gospel mentioned five times in verse 1, the gospel of God. Uh, verse 9, uh, notice the preaching of the gospel of His Son. Uh, verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, verse 17, for in it, the it being the gospel, Uh, It's mentioned five times. This book is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But notice one of the goals of Paul's goals in verse 11. As he starts out and writes to them, he says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you or to establish you, to strengthen, to establish. Now, he's not talking there about spiritual gifts as we might think of them. That's uh, uh, as Ephesians 4 or 1 Corinthians 12. No, look, Paul even clarifies that. Verse 12, he says, that is, talking about that gift, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And he even clarifies his thought further in verse 15 when he says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul's desire for them, understanding this paragraph, is according to verse 11, it is to strengthen them or to establish them in the gift which is the gospel. The gospel. They needed to comprehend it. They needed to understand it. He he says he wanted to come to them in person and to teach them these things. Uh, But for now, this letter is going to have to do, and his principal theme is to establish them. In the gospel. Now that's interesting to me because note the fact that they are already believers. Did you see that? Verse 7 To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. These are believers that he's writing to, and yet he tells them, I want you to be established in the gospel. Now sometimes we think about the gospel, we rightly assume that uh, there is evangelism that is intended by the teaching and preaching of the gospel, but notice here, according to Paul, there is also sanctification, not just evangelism, but spiritual growth that is tied to the gospel, spiritual growth that comes from Christians, uh, the growth of Christians. In other words, how does the church grow? How how do Christians grow and and be fruitful? Well, according to Paul here, it is not because we depart from the gospel, but rather it is because we focus on the gospel more. The need for us to be established in the gospel. We don't need less preaching of the gospel. We need more preaching of the gospel in order to grow. I've heard some folks say, "Uh, Pastor, you sure preach the gospel and... uh, but boy, it's a shame that there aren't many lost people here uh, to hear that gospel. Uh, I do preach the gospel for lost people. And, and I certainly want as many lost people as possible to hear it because, even as Paul says, it, it is the gospel, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But please know that I also preach the gospel for saved people, for you. Why is that? Because it's how the church grows. It's how Christians grow by focusing more and more on the finished work of Jesus Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection, His coming again, and all things that pertain and flow from this glorious gospel. It is the gospel that grows us spiritually. What these Roman Christians needed was to be strengthened and established in the gospel. And and brothers and sisters, the needs of today's church are no different. Our church or any other church for that matter. It needs the gospel of Jesus Christ more than anything else. Jared Wilson makes a good point on this when he talks about the temptation today is to treat the gospel as past tense for Christians And present tense for unbelievers. In other words, the thought process is once you get the gospel, then you just need to move on to other things. Or as Wilson says, the gospel, uh, he puts it this way, the gospel is not Christianity 101. It's the entire degree program. I couldn't agree more with that. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, it's of first importance. that The gospel is the central, is central to the church. It's the hallmark and the centerpiece of all the church does. It's the power of God in the church. Joel Lindsay writes this, a gospel-centered church is so because the gospel is the engine that propels its mission. The gospel is the primary lens through which We view the world and people and things in it. In other words, it drives everything that we do. All of our teaching, all of our programs, our ministries, our missions, they're all to be connected to the content of the gospel. And so it's clear, one of the reasons Paul writes to Romans is that he wants them and he wants us to be established in the gospel, to be strengthened in the gospel. Notice another purpose Paul has for writing. It is to unite us around the gospel. It is to unite us or to bring harmony. This is, uh, as you read the book of of Romans, the letter of Romans, you you find that one of Paul's primary aims was to bring harmony to the church uh, so that in this particular church, the Jews and the Gentiles would come together and live and worship God. And, and it's a key and what Paul is saying here in his writing is that this kind of unity in the church could only be attained through the gospel. Let me give you a small sampling of what I'm talking about. The first one here is in chapter 1, verse 16. You know this verse. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek He goes out of his way to to make that statement. He's talking about the gospel being the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In other words, the Jew is saved the same way a Greek is. They are both saved through the gospel. If you turn to chapter 3 for a moment, verses 29 and 30, Paul reiterates this, though slightly different. He asks this question, uh, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Paul answers, yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? In other words, how are Jews and Gentiles saved? They're saved the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel. As he goes on and he explains so much of this gospel, all the way through chapter 12, we, uh, we see Paul begin to apply the gospel there. In chapter 12, verse 5, he has this uh, statement for them, this challenge, and he says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. He tells this church, we are one body, both Jews and Gentiles, through our faith in Christ. And then notice how we should apply this. Verse 10 of chapter 12. He says to them, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do you see that theme beginning to to emerge? You turn all the way to the end, chapters 14 and 15, and there is, if you just notice the headings there, there's there's a lengthy uh, teaching for us on how the gospel empowers us to live in harmony with one another. Climaxing with chapter 15, perhaps verse 5, 15 verse 5, when he says, uh, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So his aim, part of his aim in this letter is to bring unity around the gospel. This was an important uh, issue. Uh, historically, we know that the uh, Jewish Christians here were expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius around the year 49 AD. So the Jewish Christians were booted out of Rome. But about five or six late years later, Claudius died. And there was a... A new emperor who came, and the Jewish Christians came back into Rome. Uh, commentator Christopher Ash shares an illustration which might be helpful for us. We might imagine in the church at Rome that there, at the particular time, there were uh, Jewish and Gentile believers together, and there was a couple of Jewish people that's. Uh, uh, he says, imagine their names being Joseph and Simeon, uh, good Jewish names, and Joseph was the church treasurer there, and, and Simeon, the church uh, uh, secretary, and they're both occupying their places in the church at Rome, and then all of a sudden Claudius kicks them out, and all the other Jewish Christians out of the country, and somebody has to take over, so there's a couple of Gentile believers. And so we might uh, imagine their names being Linus and Julius. And Linus and Julius are faithful brothers in Christ, Gentiles. So they step in. To, somebody's got to do this job of, of, of church secretary and church treasurer. And so they do so, and they serve faithfully for, for five or six years or so. And then uh, Emperor Claudius dies, and Joseph and Simeon come back. And you know what will happen. Joseph and Simeon want their jobs back, don't they? And, and they begin to say, well, you know, we, we would like our position. After all, we're Jews, and remember, the gospel is for the Jews first, and so naturally, we should be first. But then there's Linus and Julius, who've been serving faithfully for several years now, and they're believers too. And so it's, it's not difficult to see that such a scenario might play out in all of the factors that might come. And I know that nothing like that ever happens in the church today, does it? Nobody ever gets bent out of shape about, doing things, and so and, and so. But, but the church in Rome is like every church. It, it, it needs. It's not a natural place of harmony and peace, because we're all sinners, right? And we all tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. So what's Paul's solution to this? What is he going to say to them in writing this letter? I know you're shocked by the answer, but he tells them the gospel. The gospel, he expounds the depths of the gospel, and his aim, he tells them several places throughout the letter, is to bring them into unity, Jews and Gentiles together in harmony in the church. And so one of the things we need to ask as we study this book is how does the gospel promote uh, church unity? How does it promote unity in our church today? How does it promote harmony uh, in us? In our church, as far as I know, we don't have a big division between Jews and Gentiles. If there's a big division between Jews and Gentiles, someone, someone tell me. But, but, I, but I know this is evident to everybody that we are living in a world and in a time that is becoming more and more divided, aren't we? Uh, and we must not forget, church, the message that, that the basis of our unity uh, is not found in the things of this world. It is not found in politics or, or ethnicity or economic status or any of those things. Our unity is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what brings us together. And the more we focus on the gospel, the more we as believers will be brought together in harmony. This is what Paul teaches us. There's an old story about a congregation uh, who had... Uh, at the time, were bickering over the use of a, a musical instrument in the church. And half of the congregation wanted to use the piano in the church service, and the other half didn't. The other half felt it was a tool of the devil, that piano, they would say. One Sunday morning, people came to worship, and lo and behold, there was a new piano on the stage to the horror of half the congregation it was played in worship imagine that half the church got up and left the next sunday everybody came back but the piano was missing and those who bought it back, they couldn't find Those who bought it, they couldn't find it. They looked for all over the place, forever, building. All, they were looking everywhere. Months went by, accusations flying back and forth. And about a year later, the piano was found. And it was found in the baptistry. Imagine that. It had been in the baptistry all along. It reminds us another reason Paul is writing, and the reason why we're studying it, is is to partner together for the spread of the gospel. Uh, Only a church that lives in harmony under Christ can really reach out effectively with zeal. And likewise, only a church that reaches out with zeal can live in harmony. This seems to be the conviction of Paul that these things go together. He ties them together for us at several places in in the gospel. We read in chapter 1, verse 15 again, he said, uh, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. One of the reasons Paul is eager to, to preach the gospel is because he wants them to catch the same eagerness. He wants them to get eager about this, for the gospel to be preached to others. He wants to light a fire in us for the gospel of God. Near the end of the book, again, he opens his heart, back in chapter 15, he speaks of his desire to take the gospel to people who haven't heard it. Chapter 15, verse 20, notice that verse. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. And he shares with the church in Rome his plans there in that paragraph to take the gospel to Spain, and he He has a desire for them to partner with him, to do this. Verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And notice, to be helped on my journey there by you. That's a a very practical uh, way, a technical, almost a technical term for giving practical and financial assistance. Why is Paul writing this letter? It, It is in part because he wants them to partner with him, to be a missionary church. A missionary sending and supporting church. Maybe even a base camp by which Paul can operate and plant other churches out of that church. He wants to partner with them in the gospel. You see, but in order for that to happen, they have to catch Paul's eagerness and passion for the gospel. They have to be established in it. They have to be unified around it. Because only then will they be zealous in willingness in their willingness to partner to spread it these things are related together aren't they all of these things and i tell you these are the kinds of things that keep faithful pastors up at nighttime because they think about how how grounded are, are my people? How established are they in the gospel? How can, how can I help to establish them more? And concerns about unity in the church and harmony in the church. And, and then concerns about how do we get this good news of the gospel to the ends of the world? How can we increase our zeal and, and, and our partnership and getting it out to people who hear it? Paul understood this, and the answer to all of this, believe it or not, is the preaching and teaching of the full gospel of God. This is his approach. And so you have in this great book, just a brief outline of the whole book, you have the heart of the gospel, that's where we are, chapters one through four, which is a justification by faith. In other words, we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone. That's the foundation. If we miss it, we miss everything. And then you have chapters five through eight, the assurance of the gospel, which is really the ministry of the spirit, the Holy Spirit and the life of the, the believer. And then in chapters 9 through 11, you have the defense of the gospel, which involves the 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 wise sovereignty of God in, in, in conversion. And then in chapters 12 through 16, we have the transforming power of the gospel. The full gospel is the key to both gospel partnership and church harmony. That's what he's saying. Only a church that is soaked in the gospel and established in the gospel will live in harmony. And only a church that is taught the gospel will reach out with evangelistic zeal. So when we read and study Romans, as we open it up and we study all these passages and lots of places that are very deep and and you know lofty peaks and so forth, when we read Romans, we need to keep in the back of our mind how will this study of the gospel promote an eagerness and a zeal for the gospel to be proclaimed? Let me give you some application questions really quick. Do you know the gospel? I mean, if you were asked right after church today by somebody, can you tell me, well, the pastor's talking about gospel. What, what is the gospel? Could you, could you tell them? Do you know it? Do, do you know it well enough to share it? Uh, are, are, you, are we unified around that gospel? Are we eager to share it, even to take it to the, the places where Christ has not been named, as Paul said? We need to pray, church, that as we study this, that God would do the work in our hearts in these areas, amen, as we need it. As important as all of these reasons are, there's one more reason I think Paul writes, and it may be the most important at all because it undergirds all of the other reasons, and that is that Paul wanted to uh, intensify our worship in response to the gospel. Uh, so, uh, in other words, Paul wanted the church to be established, unified, so that they would praise God harmoniously together, and all of this was for the glory of God. And, and you just see it throughout this, this whole book as, as a theme. Uh, chapter 1, Paul points to the failure of worship, the worship of the one true God, and the resulting improper worship as being at the heart of all of our problems today. That's what he says, chapter 1, verse 21. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. This is chapter 1. This is what's wrong. And so it's not surprising then as Paul begins to unfold the gospel as the answer, he begins to discuss the implications of this. In, in chapter 5, we read three times in the first 11 verses that Paul just pauses to say, we rejoice, he says. Here's one example, chapter 5, verse 2, through Him, jesus that is Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice. In hope of the glory of God. In other words, these truths about the gospel should intensify our our worship. There's there's many more, just a couple of more. Uh, uh, He reflects on, uh, in chapters 9 through 11, that incredible section there about the, the, the mysterious nature of God's sovereignty and salvation. As he finishes that, chapter 11, verse 33, he just pauses and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How inscrutable His ways! He just praises God for this gospel. Uh, In chapter 15, he describes Christ's work in bringing us together in the gospel, and he gives them the purpose for this. This is uh, chapter 15, verse 6. I know your fingers are getting a good workout today. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 6. He he gives the purpose for their unity, he says, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wanted the church, ours too, to be strengthened in the gospel, unified around it, and that we would be characterized by fervent, heartfelt worship of God. A worship... uh, that is not detached, by the way, from profound theological truth, doctrine, but a worship that is grounded in that doctrine and truth. The beauty and depth of the gospel should lead us to worship. This seems to be part of the effort, too, of the spread of the gospel. The, The reason Paul wants to spread the gospel is because he believes with all of his heart that God is so great that there ought to be more worshipers of God today on the planet. Do you believe that? More worshipers are God, and here, worshiping with us, and in churches all around the world. This should lead us, uh, perhaps the climax. Uh, one of the climax verses of the book, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, this was the text of my very first sermon 30 years ago, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, what does it say? Worship, isn't it? Worship, presenting myself as a sacrifice, this is the ultimate response of the book, in, all, in light of all the mercy of God. We see in chapters 1 through 11, we come to chapter 12, and here's the call to present myself as a living sacrifice to this God. This involves, as the text explains, humbling myself in the congregation. It involves loving, serving others in humility and harmony. It involves uh, even evangelism and seeking to fulfill the Great Commission. Paul would describe in chapter 15, he talks about his own missionary work as being priestly service. His priestly service was not of offering uh, sacrifices of angels, animals like the priest of old, but rather a self-sacrifice of giving himself so that the gospel could spread. Church, this is the gospel's work in our lives. This is what we need to happen in us, to be established and unified, to create a zeal in us to go, and all of this leading to worship, to to greater love for God and a more fervent worship of God. Him. let's pray to this end, church would you pray to this end that God would do these things that as we spend time together in Romans and we're going up this long peak together and it's kind of hard at times uh, but as we're spending time reflecting on the gospel that God would do this transforming work in our hearts just as Paul wanted for the Romans may he do it in us just a couple of examples in closing uh, about the power of, of this book, um, in the fourth century, there was a man uh, named Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you pronounce his names, but, but he was a, a lost man. He was under conviction about the truthfulness of Christianity. He was a, a, a quite a brilliant man, a educated philosopher, attractive, but he was, he was a very immoral man, a very immoral man, and he struggled to leave his sin behind. He was struggling with the gospel one day he was at a friend's house this is by his own testimony and he heard a child singing this song and and the words of the song were were just repeating over and over again take and read take and read and he said some strange way it was like god just broke through in my life and i I ran home I, i ran to find a copy of the bible because i was hearing take and read and he said, I opened up that Bible just at random, and, and the, the first place that my eyes fell was right in Romans 13, verse 13. And here's what that verse said to this immoral man, this lost man. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. He says, those are the exact words I needed to hear. Here's what he wrote in his, his journal. He said, instantly, as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt was vanished away, and he was gloriously saved by Jesus Christ. He became one of the greatest, uh, great spiritual giants between the Apostle Paul and Martin Luther uh, in terms of, of his theology. Martin Luther was another one. About a thousand years or so later, uh, he was kind of the opposite of, uh, of Augustine. He was, he was not immoral at all. Uh, Martin Luther was one of the most uh, pious, religious, earnest uh, monks uh, you could have ever met. He, he, had, uh, he, he desperately wanted to please God. He had no peace in his soul. Think of that, one of the most religious people you could ever meet, no peace in his life. Uh, he desperately wanted to please God, but the harder that he worked at it, the more elusive salvation seemed to be. He, he just kept doing good things over and over again. He's punishing himself for his sin. And then one day, he, stu- he kind of happened upon Romans 1, verse 17. And it says, for in it, that is speaking of the gospel, remember, for in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith. And when Luther read that verse he realized that the righteousness that he needed and he longed for so much was not a righteousness that he could earn himself. It was not a righteousness that it could be earned by all of his good works. And his attempt at at to please God through his religion. But rather what he needed was a righteousness outside of himself. A righteousness from God. And he learned in that verse as it teaches that that righteousness from God is given to a person as a gift. And it's given when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Taking God at his word. And believing. And Luther did and he was gloriously saved. What what a wonderful contrast. I tell you today, whether you are far from God in your sins, or whether you are miserably lost in your religion, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Praise God for that. Let's pray today. Father, uh, thank you so much for the power of the gospel, Lord, and we are uh, eager and excited, Lord, to, to dive a little deeper into it and to understand it, Lord, and, but our prayer is that you would use it to transform us, and we recognize, Lord, that that first transformation that needs to happen and has happened in many folks' lives who are here, but maybe there are some here in which it hasn't happened. That is salvation. That is salvation. An understanding that, that Christianity is not about doing a whole lot of good things so that we can earn righteousness for ourselves, but rather it is acknowledging our sin and our need for the righteousness that only God can give through Jesus. We pray for those today that... Uh, may be either far from you in their sin or or miserably lost in their religion and with no peace, that, Lord, they would understand today what you have done for them through the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and the free gift of salvation that comes upon our repentance and faith in him. So may they turn today. And, Lord, may you... For those of us who, who do believe, we pray that you would use your word to, to begin transforming our lives, uh, to be established and to be unified and to be zealous for the spread and, uh, of the gospel and th- that our worship of you would be intensified and grow greater. Do these works in our hearts and lives. We pray today in Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and sing this morning, our invitation hymn is grace greater than our sin. What a glorious truth. Let's stand and sing that today. If you need to respond publicly in some way, I invite you to come forward as we sing. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.